Thrusting space science into the audio dimension. This is Naked Astronomy. On the Naked Astronomy podcast this month, Earth's magnetic field. We find out how it keeps us safe and how the weak spots let space hardware get damaged. We find out how author Stuart Clark tackles the big questions of the universe. And we discover CubeSats, the Rubik's Cube-sized satellites that help get new technology off the ground. What we envisage is using a CubeSat as a, a vehicle, a platform for rapidly testing new technologies in space, for example. We use a CubeSat as a way of getting an in-orbit demonstration very quickly, very cheaply and very effectively. Plus news of the birth of massive stars, asymmetric supernovae and extreme weather on exoplanets. The Very Large Telescope spots 7,000 kilometres per hour winds on a Jupiter-sized planet. I'm Ben Valsler from The Naked Scientists and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC and Cambridge University's 800th anniversary team, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. And now we join our expert panel to catch up with the latest news in astronomy and cosmology. Joining me this week was Dominic Ford, Andrew Ponson, and here's Carolyn Crawford. I've been quite interested in an observation of massive star formation. This is a team from the University of Michigan led by Stefan Krauss, who've just published an article in Nature magazine. And this is an interesting problem, and it's one that maybe isn't obvious to people who haven't thought about it, because actually seeing the birth process of a star is not trivial, because as we've talked about in previous podcasts, when that happens, it's all enshrouded by this sort of surrounding dust clouds. And we can see lower mass stars more easily. The trouble about very massive stars, high mass stars, is they form and they develop a lot more quickly. And so it's much harder to actually catch them in that process of formation. By the time the dust clouds disperse and the stars emerge, they're already formed. And so there has been some speculation about whether high mass stars form in the same way as the low mass stars, because maybe they've got much stronger stellar winds and there's also lots of radiation pressure that could actually disrupt the formation of a disk. And there have been some fairly exotic ideas about maybe they form from merging of lower mass stars to make high mass stars. So there's been some speculation about this. The interesting thing about the recent Nature paper is they're looking directly at a very massive young star. And so by massive, it's 20 times the mass of our sun. It's about 30,000 times more luminous. And it's only 60,000 years old is the best estimate. So it really is massive. It's very different from our sun. And what they've observed is that this star is in the middle of a disk, just like all the lower mass systems. It's just everything scaled up in terms of size and the amount of matter involved in the disk. And it seems to confirm that all stars, high mass, low mass, form in the same way from an accretion disk, just at different rates of formation. So that's nice confirmation. The next stage, though, is quite interesting. It's whether you might get planets in that disk. If you have a high-mass star forming from this sort of cocoon of dust and, and gas, 
does that then go on to form planetary systems? And certainly when similar high-mass stars have been observed in the infrared, there's been evidence of jets from them. And that's also true in this star, that it has at least a jet. Whether these are going to disrupt the disk, maybe at a later stage, and prevent the formation of planetary systems. And the interesting thing about this star's disk, sorry, I haven't given it its name. It's got a lovely telephone number. It's RS13481-6124, in case anybody likes to be precise about these things. So... The interesting thing is that maybe the inside of this accretion disk is actually swept quite clear of dust. It seems to be completely devoid of that kind of material, suggesting that maybe this deficit is due to matter already beginning to be accrued into planets. So I'd say that's that's still very much open to interpretation, but it's an interesting next step in the argument about massive star formation and whether they ever have planetary systems. With star formation, of course, because of the timescales involved, we can't find a system, find somewhere and watch stars form in order to actually get our answers. Is the problem with massive stars the rate at which they form, which means that it's not so easy to find different areas that act as snapshots in their development? That's entirely it. It's because they form so much more quickly. It's just very hard to catch them in the act, as it were, within the birth process. So, yeah, it... Also, the other thing about massive stars is they're much rarer than these stars like our sun. It's perhaps every one in a hundred stars is a really massive star. So that's also part of the difficulty about finding examples to study. And from the birth of a massive star to the death of a star, Dominic, what do you have for us? Well, I saw a fascinating paper where astronomers studying the way in which supernovae explode have made some findings that perhaps help to strengthen the case for dark energy is an important constituent of the universe. This research, led by Kaichi Maeda at the University of Tokyo and published in the journal Nature on the 1st of July, focuses on type 1a supernovae, which are incredibly important because we use them for working out how distant objects are in the universe. We have this problem when we see a galaxy on the sky that we essentially have a two-dimensional image and we have no idea how far away that galaxy is. So people have developed various methods for estimating the distances to galaxies. And one of the simplest methods is to find an object in that galaxy where you know exactly how luminous it is, and then using how bright it appears to work out how far away it is. Now, type 1a supernovae are brilliant so-called standard candles because they're very predictable in how they behave, and they're also very bright, so you can see them across huge cosmological distances. And so the argument for dark energy, where you're looking at very distant galaxies on the other side of the universe, is mostly based on distances derived from type 1a supernova brightnesses. But there's been a question mark over this work, because looking at nearby type 1a supernovae, we see some variability. And you have the question, are the supernovae on the other side of the universe behaving the same way as the nearby examples? Now, what this research suggests is that the variability just stems from anisotropy in these supernova explosions. So they explode preferentially on one side rather than the other, and depending upon whether that side is facing you, you see slightly different behaviour. And that is entirely random. So we would expect the distant supernovae to be variable in exactly the same way as the nearby supernovae, and so they're probably still good standard candles for estimating how much dark energy there is in the universe. 
Thank you, Dominic. Andrew, what have you seen for us this month? Well, talking about cosmology, of course, one of the ways we can do really accurate cosmology is with something called the cosmic microwave background, which we've mentioned before. Because it's light left over from the Big Bang itself, light that was formed very early in the universe, it's not actually subject to some of the kind of uncertainties that Dominic's been talking about. So we're really always interested in getting more precise measurements of that light from the early universe. Now, The state of the art in these measurements is Planck, which we've mentioned before. It's been up for well over a year now, and uh, it's been quietly scanning the sky, sending its data back. And people on the Planck project have really got started with analysing that data, although they're not really releasing any of their conclusions. What they have released this month is a false colour image of the full sky as measured by Planck. Now, given that we're going after the cosmic microwave background, it might be slightly surprising that if you get this image and look at it, uh, and you can just download it, and it's a really beautiful image. The main thing you see, though, is in fact our galaxy, which is exactly what you don't want to see when you're looking for light from the Big Bang. The reason that the galaxy is so prominent is because they've done it absolutely on purpose. They just want to prove that it's working and uh, producing beautiful pictures without giving away any details of what it's actually seen in the cosmic microwave background. So Planck measures in many different wave bands, different frequencies, if you like. It's almost like tuning your radio to different frequencies. It's able to measure this light at all these different frequencies. And ultimately, that allows people to get rid of foreground distractions like the galaxy. But at the moment, it seems like they've done exactly the opposite uh, to give us this beautiful picture without uh, giving too much away. So what's the next stage for Planck researchers? Well, the next stage is that now that they've got uh, a full picture of the sky, uh, internally what they'll be doing within the group is producing images which do have the galaxy subtracted out. And then they can get going on the, the real business of understanding what that means for cosmology, turning the little ripples that we see into to a meaningful picture for cosmology. And in fact, ESA Director of Science, David Southwood, uh, summarised this so well that I'd like to use his words. Uh, He said, we're opening the door to an El Dorado where scientists can seek the nuggets that will lead to a deeper understanding of how our universe came to be. Now the scientific harvest must begin. And to make the point that, that you can't use this image for science absolutely clear, David Southwood actually said... This is the moment Planck was conceived for. We're not giving the answer. Which I thought was an odd way to conceive a mission, to not give the answer, (laughs) but there you are. (laughs) Carolyn, what else do we have this month? Well, I just want to hark back to the Messenger spacecraft, which, as I think we've talked about in a previous podcast, made its third and final flyby of the planet Mercury last September, It's actually manoeuvring now into an orbit around the planet where it's going to get there next year. But they've now published some of the science data from that last flyby in the journal Science. And just one part of that really caught my eye, which is just the news that Mercury's a lot more dynamic than we might have expected. It's the smallest planet. And the thing about a small planet is a large surface area to volume ratio, which basically means you expect all the internal heat that's, you know, deep within the planet, may have been there originally when the planet formed, but to have long since escaped. But 
by studying some of the features on the surface, they think it had a much longer period of volcanic activity, and this extended much later than anybody had realised. And it's quite interesting how you work this out. They've looked at some of the flaws of very young, so that some of the most recent, though of course we're still talking millions, if not billions of years ago, but some of the most recent impact basins on the surface of the planet, which have then subsequently been filled by volcanic material, and then tried to date that material just from how smooth it is. If you think about it, material is impinging on the planet all the time. The smoother it is, the fewer craters, the younger that surface. And by actually dating that surface, they're showing that this volcanic activity happened quite some time after that young impact. And there was evidence from some of the features there, perhaps volcanic vents nearby. So all of this suggests that Mercury hung onto its internal heat much later and for much longer than we had hitherto assumed. And it's kind of interesting. We, we now need to work out how it's done that, and we don't yet know why. We know that there are parts of the solar system where volcanic activity actually happens because of tidal forces causing friction inside things like moons. What are the hypotheses for Mercury? Yes, you're right. There are sort of certainly moons like Io around Jupiter where they're under tremendous gravitational tidal forces and that sustains this internal heat. It's less obvious that that's the case for Mercury. And this is a sufficiently new result that I'm not aware of any competing ideas. That I'm sure the people who are working on this data have some. We'll just have to wait and see. So from old volcanic activity on Mercury, we go to some extreme weather on an exoplanet. Andrew, what's this planet and what's going on? Well, the planet is HD 209458b, which is 150 light years away in the constellation of Pegasus. So it's an exoplanet. It's orbiting around a star other than our own sun. And it's got an interesting history, actually. This planet is rather like Jupiter, but unlike Jupiter, it orbits extremely close to the uh, parent star. It's about, say, uh, 5% of the distance from the Earth to the sun. Uh, that's the distance from this planet to, to its sun. So it's very close, and like Jupiter, it's very large. But the interesting history is that it was actually the first ever planet back in 1999 to be directly detected, what we call transiting in front of the star, which means that the planet every now and again actually blocks out part of the light from that star on its path to us because it's just uh, lined up in front as it goes around uh, on its orbit. The news about it this month is that some new observations have been taken using the Very Large Telescope and a particular spectrograph called CryRes, that acronym for the Cryogenic Infrared Spectrograph. And this has been taken by a group based at Leiden University. And the reason they've been taking new observations of this is to try and understand more about what's really going on in this planet. And by using this extremely advanced spectrograph on the uh, Very Large Telescope, which is a 10-metre telescope, so the, the best telescope we have access to from the ground, they've been able to measure the behaviour of carbon monoxide molecules in the atmosphere of this planet. Now, that's an impressive technical achievement in itself. But the remarkable thing that they've discovered is that in the high-altitude winds on this planet, there are winds blowing at about 2 kilometres per second. That's 7,000 kilometres per hour 
around the surface of this planet. And that's clearly an absolutely extraordinary storm to be going on on a planet. And what they think is that the planet is so close to the star that the incredible amount of heat and uh, light that it's receiving from that star is heating up the day side of the planet extremely strongly. And that causes all the gas on that side of the planet to expand, and that in turn creates this incredible wind. So it really wouldn't be a nice place to live. Perhaps not. Thank you, Andrew. Dominic, what else do we have this month? Well, the White spacecraft, which you may remember we talked about back at Christmas time, has just completed its first survey of the sky on the 17th of July. It's been operating well and it's still got some coolant left. So until the coolant runs out, it's going to start a second survey of the sky to try and get even better images. And we can look forward to the first data release in May next year. So congratulations to WISE and we look forward to discussing the data next year. That was Dominic Ford and before him Andrew Ponson and Carolyn Crawford with a roundup of space science news. They'll be back later on to tackle your questions. Expand your mind and Neptune in. Naked Astronomy, the stellar space science show. For more episodes of this programme, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. Still to come, we find out how tiny cubic satellites help to test new technology and explore the big questions of the universe with Stuart Clark. But first, Cathy Whaler from the University of Edinburgh explains how we study the Earth's magnetic field and why it's important for more than just finding our way around. The magnetic field of the Earth is incredibly important to protect us from the damaging space environment external to us. It gives us a way of navigating We want to know where north is and our compass needle roughly points there and we want to know how the field changes to understand the dynamics of what's going on in the interior. It's also used for studying the rocks in the near surface which has implications for mineral exploration and hydrocarbon extraction and exploration. And how's that actually done? What do we need to do? I assume we can't just use a network of compasses and watch how they change. We need something a little bit more complicated than that so we can actually measure not just the direction a compass needle points in, but we can measure things like the strength of the magnetic field and analyse that with a series of vector and scalar data. So we want to be able to measure the strength as well as the direction of the field, and we often do that by using a three-component magnetometer that measures three orthogonal components of the field as well as its strength. What are the things that compound it? What are the things that make it difficult to study? Because... We are not only subject to our own magnetic field, but also that of the sun, of course. The magnetic environment in the Earth is incredibly complicated. As you say, we have a particle streaming off the sun, which interact with the magnetic shield that our bar magnet-like field provides. But those interactions themselves generate other fields and currents and the external field induces currents in the interior, which then go back to interact with and modify the external fields and it's really an unholy mess that we need to try and sort out. And back down on Earth it's not really like a bar magnet is it that we don't just have this one pervading field? That's right the 90% approximation to what we see at the Earth's surface is a bar magnet that's tilted about 11 degrees from geographic north but superimposed on that is an awful lot of fine scale detail and structure that's coming from all these different sources that I've just mentioned. 
So Earth's magnetic field varies over time and over geographical location. Are there any specific examples we know of where this is having an impact on us? Yes, one of the main deviations from the simple bar magnet, tilted bar magnet description of the field I've given you is in the South Atlantic, where what we find is the intensity or the strength of the magnetic field is much lower than we would predict from that simple model. And this is actually providing something of a space hazard, so that there have been several satellite failures, satellites have to turn off their instrumentation when they cross this anomaly, and it's becoming quite a, a problem because we're finding that this low is getting lower and lower with time. Some people are postulating that this might be the start of a magnetic field reversal when the polarity of the bar magnet flips. We have magnetometers, we know how we can use them to get the data that we want, but how do we actually deploy them? What tricks do we need to use? We used to have just earthbound data and that goes back centuries now because one of the early observations that was made at sea was the direction the magnetic field points in. So that's been a source of data mining that's provided us the field to a reasonable level of detail back over four centuries. But in the modern era, we use a combination of ground-based permanent observatories, which have got very high fidelity on magnetically quiet sites, incredibly well-operated feeding into a global network that you can analyse almost in real time now and combining that with a series of satellite missions. The first most useful one of which started in 1979 with a NASA launch satellite. So what's the future for measuring the magnetic field with satellites? The future is capitalising over the last decade where we've had three satellites operating simultaneously for much of the time and that's shown us the power of having three different sets of measurements from different altitudes, different local times, slightly different orbits and so on and so forth. And based on the studies that came out of that, we have now persuaded ESA to launch a constellation mission known as SWARM, which will consist of three satellites that's due to go up, we hope, in about 2012. What are you hoping to measure with SWARM? What's the detail that you really want to get that you haven't been able to get before? I think the detail that we're going to get from SWARM is in two aspects. First, SWARM with the constellation has two satellites that are going in parallel tracks and they're going to enable us to get very much more fine-scale detail of the crustal field, the one that's due to the near-surface rocks, that we need to know for understanding processes on the seafloor for enabling better exploration and extraction of natural resources. And also, because we're going to be measuring simultaneously at a number of different, what we call local times, so different magnetic environments, some in the day, some in the night, and different latitudes, we're going to be able to, we hope, disentangle the complicated set of sources much better. So at the moment we're unable to distinguish between very rapidly temporally varying and very rapidly spatially varying fields. Kathy Whaler explaining the next step in increasing our understanding of the magnetic field that keeps us safe down here on Earth. Dr Stuart Clark, astronomer and acclaimed author of The Sun Kings, has decided to widen his outlook to about as wide as it can possibly be. His latest book, The Big Questions, The Universe, is a series of essays designed to look at the biggest questions in astronomy. Taking on these questions is no easy feat, so I found out why he'd set his sights so wide. Yes, we decided to go for something that big so that we could give people 
um, a primer, really, to the, the whole breadth of astronomy and cosmology. So in the book, we tackle what we call the big questions, and, and I pick out 20 of those big questions. And these range from how did the Earth form to how did life form? Is there intelligent life elsewhere? Or how will the universe end? What are black holes? All these kind of great questions. And then there's this whole business about the dark side of the universe. What is dark matter? What is dark energy? Do we need a new theory of gravity? All of those kind of things. So I could just go through the whole sweep of where modern astronomy and cosmology is and show a little bit about how we got here, how we think we know what we know about the universe, and, and where the tension points are. So just a primer for people and hopefully it's a simple and easy to read thing that will just get them fully into modern astronomy and where we are where the excitement is i'm glad that you mentioned tension there because you've obviously gone for some topics that are still quite controversial and, and there are still people arguing on on either side of the fence how have you dealt with the controversies yes i i'm firmly of the opinion that when you are writing about science that you shouldn't just stick to the consensus point of view on what you think you know, because I actually think that, that most people are more interested in what we don't know and where the coalface of research is. And whenever you get into that situation, you're dealing with data that can be interpreted often in a number of different ways. So you do have the controversies. So the thing that I have done in the book is to try and present both sides of particular arguments uh, in, in as fair and as a sort of an enlightened way as possible, just to say this is where we're at and this is the arguments on both sides and this is where we need to go in the future. So you can imagine that you need some new equipment or some new method of analysis or computer power or something in order to try and sort this out. I think a classic example of this occurs in the What is Dark Matter chapter, where we have now decades and decades of evidence that movement in the universe doesn't quite add up. There appears to be concentrations of mass which are providing extra gravity, if you like. And the standard way of, uh, of looking at this now has been to postulate that there are dark matter particles, things that are very difficult to detect, but are out there and generating mass and gravity. But there's also a number of, of observations that don't really want to fit into that regime, and it's very difficult to reach consensus about what you think a dark matter particle should be. There are all these different candidates. And the more detailed the observations become, in, in some cases, the further away we seem to move from an understanding of even the bulk properties of dark matter. And this has led a number of people, I think a small but growing movement, to postulate ideas of modifying gravity in order to understand the way that galaxies rotate and clusters of galaxies orbit around one another. So I've tried to present both sides of those arguments and the reader can make up their mind about which one they think is is more plausible and and be primed to watch the, the astronomical press to see which way astronomers go with this in the future. As well as controversial things like dark matter, you're also covering whether or not there's actually life out in space. 
how do you go about working this out? It seems to be an area of a vast amount of speculation and, and very little data. Yes, the reason for, for doing that particular chapter uh, goes all the way back to my PhD thesis. And I was studying the composition of dust grains around young stars and these dusty envelopes are the places where planets will eventually form. And we were using a specific type of polarized light that was coming from these regions to to analyze the composition and shape of the dust grains. And by just one of those serendipitous quirks of science, we got the team that I was working with, we all got into the idea that perhaps this this circularly polarized light that was coming from these star-forming regions could actually help select the different types of amino acids. These two types of amino acids can either be right-handed or left-handed, and the circularly polarized light can preferentially destroy one over the other. And the amino acids are very interesting because they're the building blocks of proteins, and on the Earth, all the amino acids in the proteins are left-handed. So somehow you have to pre-select which amino acids you put on a planet, which then become, be, then become life. And we thought that perhaps um, we had found a good possible mechanism for doing this. And that was what really got me thinking, that if you're doing this pre-selection in star-forming clouds, then you're front-loading all the planets that you form out there with chemical building blocks that are in the right configuration to perhaps go on and form life. So that got me thinking about this question. And although you're right, there is an awful lot of speculation uh, that goes on. What I tried to do in this chapter is, is acknowledge that completely and say, look, but here is what we can be certain about. So we can, for instance, look way back throughout the universe to see when there was enough carbon generated by the stars in order to have life forms like we have on Earth. So that's, that's certainly an observation that we can make, and we can say that if, if you naively want to think that carbon is very, very important for life, well, then the universe has been habitable, in quotes, um, for about 10 billion years or so. So those are the kind of things, just putting the building blocks of where we are, not really coming to any conclusions on that question because you simply can't, um, but just saying this is what we can do, this is where we think we're going, and this is essentially where we are at the moment with that question. What topics do you find most exciting and what areas of new research are you most excited about at the moment? I'm very, very excited about moving fundamental physics experiments into space because it goes back a little bit to what we talked about just earlier about dark matter and whether there is dark matter or whether we need a new theory of gravity. And then, of course, you have this this extra component in the universe that just gets called dark energy, and nobody really knows what that is. And in fact, there's no good fit, there's no good candidate for dark energy anywhere in modern physics. So however you explain this apparent acceleration of the expansion of the universe, you will have to rewrite an area of physics completely. So that I find fantastically exciting. We have an observation that we can't just patch up. Even if you discover 
that it is Einstein's cosmological constant. There's just this energy in space, this vacuum energy. Well, then you have problems with some of the new uh, theories of physics, like supersymmetry and things like that, which are pretty much designed to explicitly forbid vacuum energy, uh, simply because when those theories were designed, we didn't think there was anything out there. So whatever you do and however you go, whatever direction you, you finally find an explanation, we will have to rewrite some part, if not a lot, of our modern understanding of the universe. So that's tremendously exciting to me. Astronomer and author Stuart Clark. The UK Space Agency announced this month a pilot programme inviting companies and academics to devise innovative ideas for payloads to be launched on tiny cube-shaped satellites. To find out more, I spoke to Dr Chris Castelli, Head of Space Science Projects for the UK Space Agency. A CubeSat is, as the name implies, it's a very small satellite. The basic CubeSat is, is cube-shaped, so it has dimensions 10 by 10 by 10 centimetres. And it's a fully functional satellite. The sort of CubeSats you can buy are made out of standardised parts. So this is perhaps one of the most important things to understand. The, the standardization allows lots of suppliers worldwide to make the various components for the satellites. And, and you can source these and build these into a standard structure, which um, is the CubeSat. So the, the basic building block, the 10 by 10 by 10 cube satellite, is called a 1U. You can make bigger CubeSats. You can go to a 2U and I think... Probably the largest size is a 3U, and as the name suggests, it's a, it's a sort of oblong-shaped satellite, which is three units long. They're really tiny. When reading about these, <laughs> I was picturing something perhaps the size of a, a desktop computer or something around right. that size. But these are really very small, aren't they? They, they are extremely small. You know, a basic one-unit CubeSat could only weigh just a few kilograms. And... You know, a lot of people have said, well, what, what could you do with something so small? And, and I, I think this is where innovation comes into the equation, if you like. You know, if you look at the power of, of the computing power that is, that is available in your average mobile phone these days, it gives you an idea of the sort of sophistication that you can pack into a small unit now. What is happening worldwide is people are realizing that with very small satellites, and advances that are made in, in microelectronics. Putting those together forces people to think about clever ways of doing things where you're limited in terms of mass and power and volume that you have. But nevertheless, you can actually do some exciting sort of things with them. So what we envisage is using a CubeSat as a, a vehicle, a platform for rapidly testing new technologies in space, for example, where you wouldn't have to go through the more classical route, which takes a very long time of ground-based qualification and, and testing and more testing before you, you get to, to really prove a technology is ready to go on a, on a very expensive multi-million dollar satellite. You can use a CubeSat as a way of getting an in-orbit demonstration very quickly, very cheaply and very effectively. What sorts of technology can you demonstrate with a CubeSat? If we take the area of space science, for example, 
future missions that are going to, to the planets, to Jupiter, for example, or other planets, want to use more sophisticated plasma and magnetospheric instrumentation. They're very sophisticated. They use new technologies. And a CubeSat, even though it's got small dimensions, could be used to test a new generation, for example, of plasma sensor and get some in-orbit verification of how it survives the extremes of space environment. So just putting a new technology into orbit would be one way of, of using a CubeSat platform. It gets it into orbit in the environment of space, in the radiation, the cold and the, uh, the harshness of space, the vacuum of space, and you can get some real in-orbit understanding of how it's performed. The other application of CubeSats is that um, you can fly many of these. So what people are thinking about doing is, is flying hundreds, well, but certainly tens of CubeSats into a sort of constellation of small satellites going around the Earth. And you can actually, with the advances that are made in imaging sensors, you can get very powerful, sensitive imaging sensors with optics into, say, a 3U CubeSat. And you could actually, with a constellation of these satellites whizzing around the Earth, you can pretty much get global coverage of any point on the Earth within 20 minutes in a very cheap and cost-effective way, which you can't do with any other system. So people are talking about launching, you know, maybe 60 or 70 of these things in orbits that swing around the poles of the Earth. And with multiple CubeSats as a constellation, you can get live images, you know, almost live images every, say, 15 to 20 minutes of anywhere on the globe. How does launching a CubeSat or a constellation of CubeSats Mm. compare with launching a more traditional, larger payload? Again, it goes back to this idea of standardisation. I mean, one way I look at it is, you you know, if you remember the PCs, as soon as PCs developed in a way that you could slot cards from various suppliers, so you could get a, a disk drive from different manufacturers, you could get motherboards, memory cards, you could assemble them all together from standardization. The cost really came down. So obviously the cost through standardization is a key driver. The fact that they're of this known mechanical interface means that um, low-cost launchers provided by, say, the Indian PSLV rocket, they actually have standard attachments which are designed specifically for CubeSats to go on. So you have a big say, for example, science or telecommunications um, satellite that is being launched, and around it are attachments on the launcher interface for CubeSats to go up at the same time. So essentially the CubeSat is being piggybacked on the, um, the main payload which is paying for the launcher. What you have to pay for, of course, is the necessary licensing and certification to make sure that these things are safe are worthy or engineer, you know, have a, a mechanical integrity to go on to the launcher and they don't sort of fall apart during launch and damage the main spacecraft, which may cost hundreds of millions of dollars. The UK Space Agency is still really in its infancy. Yes. Why are CubeSats a priority for them? We're looking at this longer term. What we hope to have is, is a longer term program, a rolling program of CubeSat developments 
built on the experience of this pilot program. So the pilot program really is just a really cheap way of, of getting something off the ground, um, so to speak. What we want to do is have a long-term program of maybe one or two CubeSats every year to 18 months then therefore have a rolling call of ideas. We could even have, for example, specific CubeSats which are just targeted at, at education, at schools, colleges and universities where students and teachers get together with help maybe from industry and from the CubeSat providers to put little experiments on board. So they act as a vehicle for inspiring and also training um, young engineers of the future. We want to sort of have a rolling program which then you know, leverages opportunities for the for the UK in the future. Chris Castelli from the UK Space Agency. This is Naked Astronomy, the space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. If you've got any questions or comments for us, then get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. But now we return to Carolyn, Andrew and Dominic to take on your space science questions. Tom Costima got in touch to ask why space looks black. I'll put this to Carolyn Crawford. Well, this is an interesting question because when you look up at the night sky, you see all these individual sources of light. But you only see any one star, any one object that's giving off photons of light when those photons have been emitted in exactly the right direction to fall onto your eye or onto your telescope dish where you collect them. What you don't see is all the light that's being emitted from the stars that's going in all the directions. And you'll never see it unless it hits something, say it's reflected from a planet or a gas cloud. This is similar to, for example, a laser pointer where you see the spot but not the beam that makes that spot. So the trouble is that most of space is empty. And so most of the light that's emitted by the stars and the galaxies doesn't actually hit anything. And if there's nothing much around, there isn't any much reflected light. And so space is black. Now, is that the same answer for this question from Colin Thrower? He wants to know why the night sky doesn't appear to be white, because if we have a near-infinite universe, then surely there'd be a star everywhere you look, and so everything would appear brilliant white. Well, again, this goes into something which has long been known as Olber's paradox, and, you know, there's, there's plenty of information available on this, but just to just praise it, you have to accept the universe isn't infinite, and we can only see objects within a certain observable horizon. And light can take millions, if not billions of years, to reach us from its source. And anything further away, very distant cosmic objects, the light from those hasn't reached us yet. It's not yet brightening our sky. And you also have complications like light from the furthest objects may have been obscured or absorbed by intervening matter. And it's also redshifted. You know, remember the, the wavelength of the light is made longer by the expansion of space in the meanwhile. So there's a whole host of physical processes to contribute to our sky not being white at night. Now, speaking of light, Andrew, we have a question from Chris Ince Jr. And he wants to know if a system of gears would enable you to transmit energy faster than light. Now, quite a few people have asked us this in various different versions. Some of them are just holding a stick a light year long. And if you move one end, then the other end must move. So that means it's gone much faster than light. What's the answer here? 
Yeah, well, you can see why people ask these uh, questions. Um, so if we go back to the gears example, if you imagine you created some perfectly interlocking gears and you turned one end, then you imagine that the other end just turns instantly. And as Chris says, you've then transferred energy faster than the speed of light. But in fact, we know that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. So something must be wrong in that argument. Uh, so the only question is, well, what's wrong with that argument? And if you start just thinking about one cog, then you've got to imagine that there's something holding it together. There are lots of molecules making up that cog, and something is holding those molecules together. And ultimately, that's actually electrostatic forces that, that hold anything together. So when you apply pressure to, say, the outer edge of the cog, it's not as though the whole cog just uh, magically starts to turn. What actually happens is that you very slightly shift some of those molecules. That changes their position relative to the other molecules. The forces change, and you set off a kind of chain reaction of things shifting very slightly, and that sh changes the forces, and it sets other things in motion. It's actually extremely complicated, so that you start to wonder how anything ever moves at all. But nonetheless, uh, we, we know that stuff does. And one way to think about this is almost like waves of motion travelling through stuff. But it all just happens so quickly that we don't notice it on an everyday level. However, if you scale things up so that they're large enough that you can notice uh, the time it would take for light to get from one side to the other, which is uh, a very short amount of time for normal-sized objects. If you scale things up so that you can actually measure that, you find that these waves become significant. And if you do the calculations carefully, they can only travel at less than the speed of light. So there's a big chain reaction, but it has to happen slower than the speed of light. Dominic, we've had a question from Jeff. He wants to know if all stars exist in galaxies or if there are some loners just floating about in the universe by themselves. Well, we think that all stars form in galaxies because it's actually quite difficult to get a star to form. If you have a cloud of protostellar gas which might collapse down to form a star, it will have some pressure associated with it, rather like a balloon. And if you squeeze it, that pressure will tend to push it back outwards again and it won't collapse down to form a star. It's only when those clouds become very heavily compressed that gravity can take over and they can start to collapse down to form a star. Now, in a galaxy, the conditions can be right and you can achieve those densities for stars to form. But between galaxies, you have the intergalactic medium, which is incredibly tenuous, and the density just isn't there for that gas to form stars. However, although all stars form in galaxies, they can, under very rare circumstances, escape their parent galaxies and be lost to intergalactic space. And we see an example of that in the Magellanic Clouds, which are two dwarf companions of our Milky Way in the southern sky that you can actually see with the naked eye. And close to those galaxies, we see the so-called Magellanic Streams of material, which is threads of gas and stars which have been shred from those galaxies in a past interaction with the Milky Way. Now, in due course, those streams of material will almost certainly crash into the Milky Way and merge into it, as indeed were the Magellanic Clouds themselves. But for a brief window of time, those stars are left in intergalactic space between two galaxies. So the answer is that, yes, they can exist outside of galaxies, but it's usually a transient thing. Yes, and the proportion of all the stars in the universe which are between galaxies would be a tiny fraction. 
Andrew, we've had a question from Buddy Prasetya, who wants to know what happens to the gravity in a situation where you get two bodies connected. Now, his example is if you ran a cable or some other material from Earth to the moon, what would happen to the gravitational attraction between the two? Well, when you connected up the Earth with the moon, absolutely nothing would happen. Uh, except, of course, it would be uh, quite dangerous to uh, take a big piece of wire and string it between the Earth and the Moon. But it's uh, a great question, actually, because it's interesting to wonder, well, why would nothing happen? Because the uh, thing that keeps the uh, Moon going round the Earth is the gravitational force. So we know the gravitational force is there. And normally when there are forces involved, if we connect up the body with those forces, something interesting happens. I mean, the, the classic example is with the electrostatic force. And you can try this yourself if you, if you rub a comb on a bit of material or something and then hold it somewhere near your hair, your hair tends to stand up on end, and, and that's the electrostatic force in action. But the moment that you uh, hold the comb onto your head for a couple of seconds and then try again, you'll find that that force is no longer operating. And the reason is that the imbalance in the charges between your hair and the comb, which is what was creating that force in the first place, naturally gets equalised when you connect those two objects together. So why is it for gravity, if you connect two objects together, the forces don't get equalised in this way? And ultimately, it comes down to the fact that gravity is what we call universally attractive. So it's unlike, uh, say, electrostatics, where there are different charges that attract or repel each other in different ways. Every piece of matter in the universe is attracted to every other piece of matter, regardless of how you try and uh, set those bits of matter up. And if you start asking why gravity should be different from all the other forces in this way, you're led into very difficult and deep questions about fundamental physics. Thank you, Andrew. Carolyn, we have a question from Johan Mann, and he says, if the Earth is gaining mass, then why is the moon drifting away? Well, first let's look at the mass being gained by the Earth. And here I assume Johan means due to the accretion of meteorites impacting onto the Earth. Now, this is quite a difficult thing to assess. The best estimates are found for the amount of material accreted by the Earth. It's somewhere between 10 and 1,000 million kilograms a year. And that's mainly in the form of what are known as micrometeorites. These are tiny particles about the size of dust grains. They're generally not going fast enough to burn up in the atmosphere and they tend to settle down to the Earth's surface. Now, 10 to 1,000 million kilograms a year, however, is less than 1,000 trillionth of the mass of the Earth a year. So, to be honest, it's not going to make a big difference to the mass of the Earth and the gravity of the Earth. So that's really not going to have a crucial impact on how the Moon is attracted towards us. So the second part of the question is, why is the Moon moving away from us? And that's due to a completely different process. And it's because there's this mismatch between the rate that Earth rotates and the rate at which the Moon travels in its orbit around the Earth. So the Earth is rotating faster than the Moon moves around in its orbit and pulls the oceans around behind it in the tides. And the net effect of this mismatch is that there's friction that arises that actually breaks the Earth's rotation. The Earth's rotation is slowing ever so slightly each year, making the day longer. But this has an effect on the moon because you have to treat the Earth and the moon as 
one system. And if the Earth's rotation is slowing, it's losing energy, but the total amount of energy, total amount of angular momentum even, in the Earth-Moon system has to be conserved. And so the energy is transferred to the Moon. It goes into increasing the Moon's speed and thus moving the Moon just to a slightly higher orbit, slightly further away from the Earth. It's only about sort of three centimetres a year. So it's a completely different mechanism that's actually just spinning the Moon up higher and further away from us. And finally, Dominic, Adnan Nasir wants to know how the radius of Earth was first calculated. Well, this is a question which has been interesting people for quite a long time. And as early as the 3rd century BC, the Greeks had a pretty good idea that the Earth was spherical because they'd noticed that the shadow it cast on the Moon during eclipses was circular. And they'd also noticed that when you move different places on the Earth, the sky appears rotated as if your local sense of which direction was upwards had changed. So legend has it that the philosopher Eratosthenes in the 3rd century BC did an experiment where he had heard that in Aswan, in southern Egypt, the sun was more or less exactly overhead at the summer solstice because it lies almost exactly on the Tropic of Cancer. And on the north Egyptian coast in Alexandria, he observed that the sun never got within 7 degrees of being straight upwards. So he calculated from that that distance was 7 degrees across the Earth's surface and we don't know exactly what value he got for the radius of the Earth because he used the unit of the stadium, and we don't know exactly how long a stadium is, but we think it was accurate to within a few percent. Now, later on, another method which was pioneered in about 1000 AD by Biruni in Persia was to climb up a high mountain, and as you climb up that high mountain, the disk of the Earth starts to recede away from you, and you expect the horizon in two opposite directions to be a bit less than 180 degrees apart because you're seeing the disk of the Earth receding away from you. And from that angle, if you've got a very flat horizon, you can work out how big the Earth was. Now, remarkably, although those two techniques are very old, they are still the techniques used for measuring the Earth. So, for example, in the 18th century, when the French Academy wanted to measure the figure of the Earth to see whether it had a bulge around the equator, as you would expect from the centrifugal force in its rotation, they were using a method of triangulation, which was actually very similar to Biruni's. That was Dominic Ford, Carolyn Crawford and Andrew Ponson discussing your space science questions. If you've got something that you'd like the panel to tackle, do get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. But that's all we have for this Naked Astronomy podcast. We'll be back very soon with more space science news, interviews and questions. If you would like to subscribe to the Naked Astronomy podcast, you can just search for us on iTunes or join us online at thenakedscientists.com slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from The Naked Scientists, and it comes to you from Cambridge University with support from its 800th anniversary team and the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Spring. 
spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.